Hey, it is a privilege and honor to be with you this morning for the worship of God. Thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Genesis chapter 4 or turn onto your phone, go to BibleGateway.com if you don't have the app. There's a, there's a way for you to read the Bible. One of the reasons we want to do that is because we believe in the reformational idea of sola scriptura, that the scripture alone is our authority and that all things should be tested in light of scripture. So don't take what I'm saying, uh, but test it in light of scripture. So we're in Genesis chapter four. I'll read the passage, pray for our time once again, and we will continue. Genesis chapter four, we'll read verses one through 10. As I read, listen carefully, this is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This ends the reading of God's word. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray. Father, it it is your great kindness to us once again that you would address us personally, each one of us, through your word, by your spirit, and I pray that that would be the case. So now as we look at this story of tragedy, Lord, give us eyes to see that this is our story. And Lord, also would you give us eyes to see the hope that is built into even this story that we just sang about. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be honoring and pleasing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we're we're wrapping up a series we call Creation and Fall. It's just the story of, of God. We're saying that the, the Bible, though very long, is one ultimate story. The meta narrative is that, that God created the world and it was good, that we turned our backs on him and the fall came into the world. But before the creation of the world, God planned its redemption through his son, Jesus. And a day is coming that we all long for, hopefully pray for and work for, that Jesus would come back and restore all things. It's creation fall, redemption, restoration. And we're in that part of the section of the series as we wrap this up, the fall section, and the question of what's wrong with the world, what's gone wrong. And the the biblical answer is, on the one hand, very simple. It's a one-word answer. It's sin, uh, but on the other, that, that has so much depth to it that we've looked at over the last few weeks. But sin it's not a word that uh, modern people like to talk about. 
Even some churches don't like to talk, to, talk about it, that, that there is a thing called sin because sin, uh, that, that seems outdated. That seems, um, you know, a term from the past. We, we like to talk about uh, uh, other, th- other ways, psychological or sociological or economic or, or, or whatever the case may be, but not sin. When I was in seminary, uh, I was given a, a, an assignment uh, in a philosophy of religion class to go and interview someone from a different uh, theological background. So it could be someone of a different faith, or it could be someone from just a very different denominational background. And so uh, where our church was at the time, it was Colorado Community Church. It was on the corner with three, two other very large churches. So very, three very large churches, all of them different, uh, but on, on one corner was what was called a, a congregational church. And I knew that at this time, this would be someone that I could get a different perspective from because uh, the, the language of today that they would use is it was a progressive church. But, but what that meant in 2002 was the pastor stood up in front of his congregation and said, I'm leaving my wife and kids and pursuing my true self. I'm, I'm pursuing my homosexual relationships. And the congregation stood up and gave him a standing ovation. So I said, well, that's a little different than how I understand it. So I'm going to go over there and just talk to someone over there. And um, as, there, as church let out, I walked across my parking lot, walked across their parking lot, went into the lobby, and, and a man maybe in his 50s was coming out. And I said, sir, I'm a student at the seminary. I'm just, I've, I've been given an assignment just to interview someone. Would you mind if I just asked you some questions? He said, he was very nice. He said, absolutely. And so we were talking and just kind of uh, trying to understand his, his, his worldview and, and biblical basis for believing. And, and then the question came up, do you believe in the, the biblical idea, uh, or, or what we would say is the biblical idea of uh, innate sin or a sin nature? And he said, well, that's an interesting question. Actually, I used to believe that, but I don't believe that anymore. And I said, really, why, why is that? And he said, well, uh, I, I had a son, and uh, watched my son grow up, and I just realized at that moment, you know, uh, he's actually inherently good, not bad, and so I I no longer believe in sin nature. I said, okay, well, I didn't have any kids at the time, so I couldn't argue with that. Now I can, but uh, I said, well, um, do you believe in in the idea of sin at all? Like, well, and he said, no, not really. I, I think it's really just the systems that we've set up that, that have, have gone awry, that need to be fixed. And, and actually, his view is, is held by a lot of people. The, the ultimate problem, they, they would say, is not, not in here, but, but, but out there. It's, it's an institutional thing. So, so maybe if everyone just voted like me, then everything would be better. Uh, or if, if we, maybe it's economic. If we somehow gave more economic opportunities and, and spread the wealth a little bit better, then the world would be better. Or maybe it's sociological. Maybe it's educational if we, if we had if everyone just had better access to education, better education, then, then the world would, would fix itself. But uh, while the Bible says those are systems that we as image bearers should work towards, those are not ultimately the problem. The ultimate problem from the biblical standpoint is not out there, but in here. And so if all those systems were fixed overnight, tomorrow there would still be brokenness in the world. But we don't like that because that 
that, that brings it into our personal lives. And, and what we've said from the beginning is, let us not think of, oh, how bad they are out there, but at, at its core, at its foundation, what this passage is telling us is about, it's, it's our story, it's our hearts. And so uh, I, I can empathize with that man. Well, actually, uh, I can't because I've had kids. And so um, I realized from, from before they could talk uh, that there was a rebellion in them. Before they could learn, there was a, an arching of the back, a screaming, a temper tantrum. Uh, we, we, we know Zoe's first words. You know Zoe's first words, right? So with furrowed brow, looking over nose from her ch- high chair, she points out her finger and says, No. <laughs> She must have heard that from us once or twice before because we were like, no, you don't do it like that, Zoe. And, 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 and so I was kind of questioning that. But, but after all, can't we empathize a, a little bit with them? Can't, can't we empathize with, with Adam and Eve at this point in the narrative? Adam and Eve, the only people that have ever lived and known what life was meant to be like. They knew what it was like to wake up and, and just enjoy everything. They knew what it was like to walk with God. They knew what it was like to enjoy creation and, and every meal and their marriage and all those things. They knew what it was like. So when sin came into the world and wrecked havoc on the world and they got kicked out of the garden, can you imagine what they felt in that moment? I mean, we have a hint of it. We have a, a longing for it. The scripture says God has put eternity in your heart. There is a longing for a day to come for restoration and renewal, but they knew it. They knew it, so they must have clung on to, in the midst of all the the, the condemnation and the the punishment, they must have clung on to that one promise in Genesis 3.15 that a day is coming from Eve that that a redeemer would be born and he would rise up and he would crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would strike his heel. And imagine them thinking, uh, when would that happen? Would it happen today, Lord? Please, Lord, let it happen today. See, we read this story, this tragic story, backwards. We see Cain as a monster. They saw him as their baby boy. And they had hope. They thought, oh, is this the fulfillment of the promise I mean, can't you empathize with them? I mean, as parents, don't, don't, you, don't, you, don't you really want to see your children grow up to be a better version than yourself? And maybe Adam and Eve were just thinking, maybe this child, Cain, can be a better version than us. Maybe he's the fulfillment of the promise. And so we see in verse 1, they conceived her, her belly began to grow. They, they saw movement. They, they didn't know what that was about. They, they felt the hiccups of Cain. And, and as the Lord promised, one day, through much pain, she gave birth. But out of that birth, they give praise to God. And, and here's what Eve says. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The word gotten is, uh, is uh, Hebrew, uh, similar to the word Cain. So, so they just see this as a good gift from God. And, and he was a good gift from God. Cain was uh, the good gift from God. And they, they, they wondered, can he grow up and be the snake crusher that we didn't do? 
So they have all this hope. They put all this promise. They put all this expectation on the firstborn. And I imagine he grew up with that expectation. He grew up with the praise. He grew up with the, uh, you're the one here. I imagine they were liable to kind of look away from any rebellion, look away from any uh, uh, sin in him, because after all, he was their hope. And again, don't we put that kind of hope in our own children? Don't we hope our children are a better version than ourselves? And so we want to give them opportunities we never had. And so, so maybe that's athletically or academically or relationally or financially. And so uh, ac- athletically, we say, I hope my son or my daughter becomes a, a better athlete than I ever was. So I'm going to give them all the opportunities I never had. I- I'm going to put them in traveling teams and all sorts of things so that so somehow I can be validated. Isn't that what it's about at some point? Or educationally, we want, we want our kids to do better than, than we did in school, which isn't hard in my case, but nonetheless, I, I pour into them and, and say, you, you can do better, you, you can go further, and they're already surpassed me, but uh, there's something in me that says, man, if, if you do well, I'm validated. And so we do it relationally. Both uh, my wife and myself grew up homes of divorce, and so uh, the refrain from our mothers on repeat was, date around, don't settle down, don't get married young, don't do the same mistakes I made, and so I married the first girl I dated. (laughs) Financially, we said, well, you know, I'm just trying to sacrifice and give my kids the things that I never had. Give them the opportunities I never had. So, so we get it. We can empathize with them. And we have to enter into this story. Before we see Cain as a monster, we have to see him as a baby boy with all the hope and all the promise they put on his shoulders. And the story begins to unfold. We'll see in this story that, once again, as we talked about two weeks ago, the root of sin, which is unbelief in the goodness of God and his trustworthiness. And then we'll see that sin is not neutral. It grows and it destroys. And finally, we'll see some gospel hope. But let's unpack the passage. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. There's no praise there. The name means breath. It means vanity. He's an afterthought. He, he's not the one that, he's not the, the serpent crusher. And so we've got Cain and we've got Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Cain took after his father. He, he worked the ground. He had noble work, but, but, but Abel was a shepherd Again, we read the Bible backwards, and we see shepherd. That's a good thing, right? So we've got David was a shepherd, and, and the shepherd saw Jesus as an infant, and, and Jesus was the good shepherd. And so we think, shepherd, that's not bad. No, no, no. <laughs> shepherd, for a, first, for, for a Hebrew, for anyone in the ancient Near East, that was the dirty job. That was the dangerous job. That was the unclean job. Oh, it was a necessary evil, but no one wanted to hang out with shepherds. Shepherds out in the field. Now, now that, that sin had come into the world, it was a dangerous job. It was a smelly job. It was a dirty job. And, and so they've got their jobs. But Cain takes after his father. He works the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the first fruit of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain 
and his offering, he had no regard. Now, what is going on there? Well, they're both, in a sense, pursuing God. They're both, in a sense, going to church. They're both bringing their offering to God. But, but we see right away, something's off here. Something's not right. And our tendency is to be like, well, what is it? Did, did Cain, Cain must have, he must have brought kind of the scraps of his vegetables. But Abel, it says what Abel brought, he brought the best. And that's true. But it's not true that Cain brought the worst. We don't know. It just says he brought an offering. It could have been a perfectly fine offering. In fact, I, I tend to think that it was. So what's the deal? Again, it's not about the offering. God looks at the person first. He looks at the heart and then the offering. Notice the order of the words. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. There, there's a heart issue here. We know this from Scripture. In fact, uh, I have it on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, kind of unpacks this a little bit and says that actually there was a heart issue here. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So it, it was a heart of faith. There's only two reasons to make an offering to God. The one is, even in its rudimentary form, a, a response of gratitude for salvation. God, you've given me everything, and out of the overflow of your goodness and grace to me, I just want to enjoy, offer this up, and that honors and glorifies the Lord. But there's another way. Uh, the other offering is one that kind of tries to put God in your debt. It's saying, God, you owe me so, so I'm bringing my offering, uh, but uh, really I'm doing it so that you will do something for me. It's the, it's the lie of the health and wealth movement. So Brad and I could go both today write the same amount of check, and we could both go to the offering box, and we could both put it in the offering box, and it could all look exactly the same, and yet there could be two different motivations, one out of the gratitude of grace of, of the gospel, and one saying, God, look what I'm doing. Just be sure to follow up with me this week, God. So it's this heart, it's this kind of transactional living. After all, I think Cain grew up that way, right? He grew up receiving praise from his parents. Oh, uh, Cain, you're awesome. Abel, yeah. But Cain, oh, good job, boy, good job. And, and, and so he, he was used to doing something and getting praise, doing something and getting praise. He learned what, it, what transactional living looked like, and it was working for him until this day he came and made an offering to God. And God simply had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain was like, hey, my whole life, when I did something good, I got praised. What's wrong with you, God? I'm very angry. And it says his face fell. That's a Hebrew idiom for he was depressed. He, this, he was seething inside and he was depressed. He didn't get the transaction that he had, he had learned to get from his parents. And so he was depressed. So transactional living will kill every relationship. It will kill your marriage. If you think, 
I'm going to do that 50-50 marriage where as long as she does her part, then I'll do my part, and then we'll live in harmony. That is a lie that will never work, that will end in divorce because you, you never see the transaction evenly. You only see it from your standpoint, and it was never intended to be a 50-50 marriage. It was always intended for you, regardless of her or him, to give your all. So transactional living will kill your relationships. It'll kill your friendships. It will kill your work. So so if you're at work saying, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be a great employee because they're going to give me a raise. They're going to give me recognition. They're going to give me a promotion. But in the moment you realize that the transactions aren't working out for you, you'll just get by. And that doesn't honor the Lord. Transactional relationships kill churches. If you say, well, I'm going to be a really big donor, so I better have a lot of pool. And I better have a lot of influence over this church. I've seen it kill churches. But that's how Cain grew up. He was a a transactional guy. And when it didn't work out for him, he got very angry. And so then we see, as Cain, with the root of sin, didn't trust in the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God. Sin grows. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? He's like, look, Cain, your issue isn't, with me, and it isn't with your brother. Your problem is yourself. Why are you angry? But it's really God's grace to, to Cain and, and to us whenever he tries to draw us out with these questions, as we'll see even later on. Why are you angry? And then he gives them this, this graceful response, full of grace. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And there's the picture of sin that will continue through the the rest of the Bible and continue through the rest of the generations and continue in our lives that no sin loves to stay dormant. It always grows. It is predatory. The image here that the author used, that God uses here, is it's a, it's a crouching lion. So, so it's on the, the path that you're on. If you keep going, there is a crouching lion. If you don't even know that there's a lion there, you're lost. But if you have an idea that on this path there's a crouching lion, you'll do something about it. And so in Scripture, throughout Scripture, there is a grace-fueled violence against sin. That's the only response acceptable. There is a violence, a hatred of sin that should be present in our life. If there's any violence in the Christian life, it is to make war with sin. No sin is just there to be your little pet. No, you take it out back, you put a bullet in its head, you empty the clip. If you've got more bullets in the house, you go get those and you put them in again. When you run out, you go get your shovel, you beat it into a pulp that is unrecognizable, you dig a hole with it, you put it in the ground, you cover it, you burn the shovel, you get a vacuum and vacuum that up. You, you, you throw away the vacuum, you put a sign in your yard and say for sale and you move out of state. It's the only response acceptable for sin. I don't know that that's normally our response though. We're like, well, it's a pet. It's cute. I've trained it. I've got it under control. No one's like, hey, something's trying to kill me. This thing will kill me if it grows. You know what happens if you treat any sin like that? Even our little small pet sins like that? It will grow, and you end up on that show when animals attack, right? 
in the 90s, 2000, right? Like, oh, we had this baby lion. We called him Leo. And, and he was from a cub. And we trained him. We gave him treats. And we told him to sit and, and roll over. And he got big. And, and we, you can put your head in his mouth. And, and, and then all of a sudden in the show, the lion crunches down on the head and, and hurts or kills someone. And then they interview the family. They're like, I don't know what happened. Because it's, it's an apex predator. It has no enemies. It, that's its whole goal is how do I get food? Preferably meat. I mean, we know this from the movie Madagascar. Like, this is what, what God says sin is like. It's a predator. And if you don't think it is, you're already lost. And so we have to be violent against our sin. We have to hate our sin. God hates your sin. His proof of that is the cross. It cost him his son. And so, are you killing sin? Do you even know what your besetting sins are? Are you comfortable with them? Are you trying to train them? Are you trying to send them little treats? It will grow. It will kill you. Every sin is predatory. Its goal, as we see, is it says its desire is contrary to you or, or for you, meaning its desire is to, to destroy you, to break you down, to, to, to unmake you. It's, it's the undoing of who you were created to be. So sin is predatory, but the story goes on. You must rule over it. And now we see that uh, there is some hope in this passage. But before we get to that, we get to this tragic verse. Cain spoke to, his, <clears throat> to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. See, uh, Hebrew would have immediately recognized that this was premeditated murder. Hey, Cain, hey, Abel, come with me to the field. Come with me to the field, Abel. Oh, where are we going? Just come with me. And this one, this son, this firstborn son who had hoped, they had hoped would, would rise up and take a stone and crush the head of the servant, rose up and took a stone and crushed the head of his brother. And Cain's story gets told generation after generation. We'll wake up tomorrow and the headlines will tell Cain's story. But Cain's story is also in us. See, Jesus says it's not out there that you have to worry about so much, it's, but it's in here. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, think Cain and Abel, will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Why? Because Jesus knows that our hearts, when they get on a path, that path leads to destruction, and it ultimately leads to hell. And so we tremble before this. But there is hope. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And again, whenever God asks questions, it's not because he's looking for information. He's giving Cain an opportunity to confess, to repent, to, to somehow get back on the right path. But Cain's heart is hardened and is hardening. Look at his cold-blooded response. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? To which 
You just want to say, yes, a thousand times yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Every image bearer has the value of God. And so we fight for justice. We fight for people. We, we know that they are our brothers ultimately. And so we do whatever we can to keep our brothers. We are our brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, throughout the scripture, we, we know this. God is perfect in his righteousness and in his holiness and in his justice so that when unrighteous blood is spilled, when when blood is spilled, it cries and says, God, you are righteous. You are just. You have to deal with this because you are good and you are right. And this can't not just go on and praise God for his holiness and his righteousness, but praise him for his grace as well. For none of us would be here today if God judged us yesterday on our righteousness. And so there's a hint of grace in this. It's crying out for the righteousness of God, but we see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. It says this, The sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abel, a shepherd, would die at the hands of his brother. Jesus, the good shepherd, would die at the hands of his brothers. Abel, was, his blood was spilled and it cries out for justice. And on the cross, Jesus' blood cries out, justified. Abel's blood cries out for revenge. And Jesus' blood cries out, redeemed. Abel's blood cries out, vengeance. And Jesus' blood cries out, forgiveness. It speaks a better word. And so let's walk in that. Let's be killing sin. Let's believe in God's goodness and trustworthiness. And let's celebrate the blood that speaks a better word. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to communion. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, though this story is tragic, that the very first person ever born did not die of natural causes or old age or a tragic accident, but by the hands of his brother. Lord, we know that this is our story and that sin is crouching along the paths each of us walk. And Lord, in and of ourselves, we have no opportunity to defend ourselves. But Jesus, you've come in. You've crushed the head of the serpent, and you've given us a way. So Lord, help us by, with grace-fueled power to be killing sin so that it won't be killing us. Lord Jesus, now, even as we remember the gospel of grace as we come to your communion table, would you make this real to us? Would you make the broken bread and the the wine so much more tangible to us now, having studied your word and heard from you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.